Well, this morning we, uh, we are back in the book of Proverbs and back in a series on wisdom in the Bible. We've just gotten started. This is number four, I think, in a series that will take us through the end of the year. And we come this morning to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, the first 12 verses of it, and to what is probably, I don't know if anyone could ever confirm this by some sort of testing, but probably the most famous passage in all of Proverbs. It's the passage that centers on the call to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and trust Him to make your paths straight. This uh, this this passage, this section of Proverbs, is another one of these words from a father to a son on how to think about wisdom. So before we get into what we normally think Proverbs is about, all of the nitty-gritty things that are the stuff of our lives, like, like, like money and what we do with our words and, and all these other specific subjects we'll come to later in the series, before we get there, before Proverbs gets there, first the stage must get set. And the seeker of wisdom, the son to whom this passage is written, needs to get ready to know what he's looking for. Needs to be, needs to be told where to look for it. And needs to be warned against what threatens it. That's the role this, this text plays. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of wisdom, we need to be taught to th- how to think about wisdom. And this morning's text is going to point us towards why wisdom matters, towards where wisdom comes from, and towards how wisdom gets tested. Why wisdom matters, where wisdom comes from, and how wisdom gets tested. We've got to know what's in this passage before we'll know what to do with all the specific texts that come later about the, the issues of life. So now, hopefully you've found that. Uh, it, it, Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to read it together. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word while I read the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first four verses here that we read, they are, they are uh, signs pointing us towards why wisdom matters. They're another call to wisdom. Uh, really a reminder of what's already been described. So if this isn't your first time with us, if you were here for the last couple of, of weeks, 
what's described in the first four verses should sound really familiar. Points to what wisdom is, what we've been saying from the beginning of this series. Wisdom isn't memorizing, for example, a, a list of teachings or do's and don'ts. It isn't rigid adherence to a moral standard like a, like a set of laws. Now, wisdom is what happens when you take good teaching, when you take the words of the wise father, when you take God's words in his law or in his, in his words throughout the Bible, when you take good information and internalize it. The heart is the key. We've been seeing that all along. And it comes up here several times. Did you see it? Verse 1, let your heart keep my commandments. There's a way to obey, but not obey from the heart. That's not wisdom. Let your heart keep my commandments by instinct, by love and affection. And down in verse 3, let steadfast let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them around your neck. You want them on your person. You want, in fact, you want to write them on the tablet of your heart so that they're in you, guiding you, almost like a set of instincts rather than by sheer willpower. That's the goal. That's where wisdom comes. That, that's what wisdom looks like in practice. It's in you. Uh, I think maybe one of the best analogies for this that I know of is the way that Stuart Duncan plays the fiddle. You guys know who Stuart Duncan is? He's, he's kind of... He's not been real well-known. He's a Nashville musician. He's become much more well-known after a project that he did with Yo-Yo Ma and Chris Thiele a couple of years ago called the Goat Rodeo Sessions. It's this great hybrid of music. It's sort of classical, sort of bluegrassy, sort of jazz, all mixed into one big heap of awesomeness. Um, and I bought this album on iTunes. I love this kind of music. And for some reason now iTunes has started embedding videos in the albums that you buy and and weighing down your iPhone with them, if you use an iPhone. If these videos are huge files, and all of a sudden, like, half my memory is taken up by this video. I kind of resent it, actually. But I ended up watching this one. Uh, it was like a little special features behind the scenes, how they were making it. And one of the things they were talking about, so you have Yo-Yo Ma, who's a classical cellist, who is maybe the most recognizable, one of the greatest living masters of music. Master of music theory, of how all the, wor- how all the rules work, uh, the structures of music. He'd teach you a lot about it. Had him talking to Stuart Duncan, who doesn't read music at all. Now, he's a virtuoso on the fiddle. He's amazing. And he's keeping up with, with Yo-Yo Ma for the entire project. You wouldn't know that one was better than the other. They aren't. Doesn't read music at all. Can't teach you about theory. Not about the rules for Stuart Duncan. Now, he's playing by the rules, but not because he reads them because he gets them, almost by instinct. That's what wisdom looks like. Now, we've been seeing that already in the series. The main thing I want you to notice from these first four verses is not that wisdom is is a condition of your heart, like a set of instincts, but why wisdom matters. The the, the other thing that's coming out in these first four verses is what wisdom gets you in life. And, And to sum it up, wisdom gets you the life that you want, the life that everybody wants, everywhere in the world. Look at, look at the first couple of verses. Don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Why? What will you get? Length of days, years of life, peace. Then verse 3. Bind them around your neck. Write them on your heart. Why? So you'll find favor and good success or good reputation in the eyes of God and others. I remember coming across in, in college in a psychology overview class. I remember learning about... Um, the hierarchy of needs, 
I think his name was Maslow or Maslow. I don't know how that's supposed to be said. Abraham Maslow, Maslow. Uh, it, usually, usually it's, it's like a diagram, almost like a pyramid. And, the, and on the very bottom are the things that everybody needs. You have to have them before you can get to the, the higher needs, like doing something awesome with your life that everybody envies. Uh, you have to have first like basics that everybody everywhere needs. You have to have physiological stability, like things like uh, food to eat, place to live, uh, the basics that make for long life. You need to be alive before you can have anything else, right? So that's your basic need on the bottom. Then the next one is um, security or safety. You need to know that you don't have to be stressed all the time about whether or not you're going to hold on to your life, that you, you're going to live with a sort of wholeness or uh, uh, security. And then above that one is belonging or love or um, uh, relationship with other people. Now, then it goes on up from there. Those are the three basic ones. Now, this is by no means some sort of standard, universally accepted way of thinking about humans. I mean, if you want to make a career for yourself in psychology, I think one of the best ways you can do it is by, is by ripping apart Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? To rewrite the thing. That'll be a great dissertation topic for you if you're looking for one. And honestly, it's a little bit outdated uh, because, I mean, nowhere on his pyramid does he describe the, the basic human need of dependable Wi-Fi access, for example. It's a little bit outdated. But, but at the very bottom, you do get things that are true for everyone, everywhere. It's just, it's wise. It may not be perfect, but it's wise. People want to have life. They want to live, which requires some basic things. They, want, they don't want to have to be afraid all the time. They want security or safety. And they want to be loved. They want to belong to, to a community that, that knows and loves them. And I was struck this week by how closely those basic needs line up with what the first four verses here are promising to the wise person. Length of days and years of life. There's your physiological needs, right? You want to live. Wisdom gets you there. Peace. That's the Bible's favorite way to describe the world as it ought to be. Peace is this shalom. It's this wholeness where things are the way they should be. Safety, security. No need to fear. And then favor and good success in the sight of God and man. To be loved, to belong. Now, there's no question that these things, especially our desire for the favor of other people, there's no question that these basic things can turn sour. Um, And it's certainly true that, that some wise people die young, that some wise Christian people now, right now, live in very insecure environments where they're fearing for their lives. I'm thinking of our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria right now. They don't have security or safety. And the book of Job explores this problem at length. Here's a guy who was wise, who had it all, and his life fell apart. So Proverbs, we're not talking about something that's going to be true invariably in every single case, but what we are talking about is this is generally true. Once you have the wisdom... You face and experience life with wisdom. That's the key to the good life you want to live in this world. Now, so far, so good. At this point, we're just recapping things we've already said. We're connecting things we've already said about how wisdom works, the sort of instinct, to things we already know we want out of life. Wisdom is the way to get these things that everybody wants. And now we come with verse 5 to the heart of this text, which takes us to the source of this wisdom that we need. 
the source of this wisdom on the heart. This is where wisdom comes from, verses 5 to 8. Um, so far, he's made a startling claim. He's coming to the, the, the gist of what he wants to jar you. He started with things that everybody everywhere wants, and now he's narrowing it down to tell you there's only one way to get there. Everybody wants it, no matter where they live, no matter when they live. There's only one way to really get there, though. There's only one thing that can do it for you. There's only one source for this wisdom, and that is you've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart, not lean on your own understanding. You've got to acknowledge him in all your ways. Now, we've, been, we've, we've seen this phrase, fear of the Lord, already in Proverbs. It's one of the favorite phrases. It comes up over and over. And I think that this call to trust in the Lord just takes us a little bit further into what it is to fear him, to live with the fear of the Lord. It's, it's a little bit more light on that idea. And, and, and just so you get this, okay, we are standing here at this pillar of all true faith, We're standing here looking up at the essence of what it is to have a relationship with God, at at what is the key to you being your true self and embracing that true self as you are. The key to it. It's also the core of Jesus' message. When he comes and opens his mouth to teach, the first things he's talking about are repentance and faith. Believe, trust in what I've brought you. Stop trusting in other things. It's in essence, he's talking about Proverbs 3. This is the message you've got to connect with if you want to have any lasting joy in this life and the life to come. And there is a deep irony in verses 5 to 7. If wisdom, think about this. If, if what it is to be wise is to have a sort of skill for living life well, an instinct that always leads you to know what to do when. If that's what we've talked about, if that's what wisdom is, the way we've talked about it for sure, then it's ironic, isn't it? That here we're we're told that the key to having that wisdom, to having that set of instincts, is not trusting your own instincts. You want to have wisdom that will help you to know what to do when the time comes? Don't ever trust that you know what to do when the time comes. That's kind of how it reads. And I think that's what he's trying to say. That the first instinct behind all the other wisdom instincts, the first one is is to trust in God and to look to him and not to assume that you have everything you need to make a good choice. The basic idea is trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him and be not wise in your own eyes. And it's easy to think that you've heard this before. You know what it means to trust the Lord and, and easy to space out here for a bit. But I want to ask you to, to lock in because there's a couple of details that are beautiful and so helpful for knowing what it would look like for us to trust in the Lord in this way, for us to get where wisdom comes from. These details come out in verse 5. And in verse 6, two dimensions to what it is to trust in him. Here's the first one. First, to trust in the Lord, like like he's calling for here, you've got to lean on him with everything that you have. You've got to lean on him with everything that you have. And here's where that's coming from. One thing we've said about how poetry works, this is poetry that we're reading here, and how poetry worked at, at the time this book was written, 
Hebrew poetry, was a lot of times you'd have two lines. You'd have one line that states an idea, then you'd have another line that would help you understand the idea better. Maybe it would contrast with it, or it would offer you a, an image of it that would help you to understand it. And in this case, it just changes the language a little bit. Changes from trust in the Lord to lean not on your own understanding. The way the poetry works is it's wanting you to say, it wanting you to recognize that that means that to trust in the Lord is to lean on Him. Leaning and trusting go together. Leaning takes you into a deeper sense of what trusting is. And here, leaning is not just, not just inclining yourself, right? So I'm leaning right now. This isn't going to do anybody who's listening on the podcast any good, but you guys can see. I'm leaning right now. This is not what he means. What he means is not to lean, but to rely on, to be prostrate on. It's what this is. For those of you listening online, I'm now leaning over my podium. So I'm resting my body on the podium now in a way that I wasn't before. So not just leaning towards him, not just sort of, sort of leaning his way, but, but throwing yourself on him. So leaning, in this case, is to lean with everything so that if he isn't trustworthy, if he should happen to not be able to hold you, you're done. You're lost. I love to ride roller coasters. It's one of my favorite things in life, kid you not. Has been since I was a little kid. And now one of my favorites is this ride that they have at Six Flags over Georgia, down in Atlanta. They have this ride called the Superman. So anytime you get on a roller coaster, you're having to do this sort of trust, where you're, you're trusting that the, the bar that comes down over your lap is going to hold steady, or in some of them they're going to go upside down, the harness that you pull down over you, that that's not going to give. But there is no ride I've ever been on that requires more trust than the Superman, because what you do is you sit in the seat with the harness that comes down, just like any normal ride that's going to go upside down. But then as you start out of the gates and you're like hanging out in space, all of a sudden they tilt you forward so that you're, you're it's like you're, you're Superman. You're flying through the air. You're leaning completely parallel to the ground. And your whole weight is hanging on this harness. And in that moment, if the harness fails, you are lost. Because at that time, you have leaned upon that harness with everything that you have. You are not hedging your bets. And that's the kind of trust that's at the, that, at the heart of all wisdom. To have thrown yourself on God so that if he isn't trustworthy, you have nothing. If he is then you can have nothing on your own and still have everything. I think it hits us where we're tempted a lot of times to to, to hedge our bets and to put some of our chips on God being true, maybe as, uh, as an excuse to not think about the problem of death or an assurance that he'll forgive us when we need it, that we'll... He'll help us to feel comfortable or blessed when it's possible. One of the things we have going in our portfolio, but we diversify our portfolio or we place our chips on some some other bets too at the same time just for safety. So I'd like to have God in my portfolio, especially for the problem of my death, but I'd still like to be just a rock star at something in this life, to be known as really, really good. 
as exceptionally good at something. Or I'd, I'd like to have God in my corner, especially when death rolls around, but I'd also like to be able to do pretty much what I want with the money that I have. I mean, didn't I earn it? I'd like to have God, but I'd still like for people to look on me and think, I wish I could parent my children like he parents his children, right? We, we want to hedge our bets. But any faith that gives birth to wisdom recognizes I have nothing. And if God isn't for me, if he isn't true, then I am nowhere, not just in the life to come, but in this life, right now, right here. So I want to talk to you, friends, if you're here and faith is a struggle for you. So, so maybe you're not a Christian yet. You're considering Christianity. That's why you're here. We're really glad you're here. We always pray that God would bring people like you to hear his word here and be among us. We're so thankful for that. Maybe, maybe you are a Christian. You're struggling to hold on to your Christian faith, but faith right now is a real struggle for you. I want you to be encouraged by this image of what trust is. So the kind of trust that, that, that God is pleased by, that gets you Jesus, that gives you wisdom, is not a certainty that you feel at all times. It's not this rigid, can't imagine it not being true kind of certainty. So that's not your goal. Don't look at that ideal. That doesn't exist for most people. It's also not an overwhelming feeling of love. Don't look at this trust in the Lord with all your heart and think, well, until I can just be overwhelmed by affection and love for him, then I I don't really believe I'm not really in. That's not what this means. To trust him with all your heart is to have put everything about your life on him. I'm betting it all. He's either true and I'm saved or he's not and I am lost, but it's all on him. Friends, there's, there's not one of you sitting out there right now who can't do that right now. You can do it now and you don't have to change what you feel and you don't have to be more certain than you are right now. All you have to do is put your life on him and see if he can hold it. I also want to talk to those of you who are maybe who are not struggling with faith, you're in a kind of danger too. Because those who who maybe aren't struggling with faith can sometimes be lulled to sleep and not recognize the lack of faith that you actually have. So here's a question that another pastor raised on this text. I think it's so helpful. Think about this. When is the last time you took a risk to obey Christ? When was the last time you diminished your future, socially, financially, professionally, for his sake? If you never surprise an unbelieving friend by your sacrifices for Christ, it's probably because what you're living for is the same earthly payoff he's living for. Think about that. Write that basic question down and think about it this afternoon and tomorrow. Maybe ask your friends. If you're in a small group, ask them, ask other friends. When you look at my life, would you say that I'm risking anything on God? Because if you're not, then you, you don't have the kind of trust that is at the core of not just a wise life, but a life lived in relationship with God. This is what it looks like. 
So I said there's, there's two details in these verses that help us get what it means to trust in the Lord. The first one is that you've got to lean on him with everything. The next one is that you've got to look for him in everything that you face. So lean on him with everything that you have, with everything that you are. Risk it all. And then the other, the other trait is looking for him or to him in everything that you face. That comes out in verse 6. So it says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So acknowledge him is, is according to the, 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 the Old Testament scholars that I was reading this week, is, is not a, a word that fully captures what the original author was writing here. So it's not just recognize that he exists. It's, it's actually the word for know him. It's like know him in all your ways, which here is always an intimate and personal knowledge. Not know about him, but know him as a, relation, as a relationship you're in. Bring that relationship into the things that you're facing. So in all your ways, every time you're faced with something you need to do, every time there's a choice or two ways you could go, whatever, in all your ways, in all the ways that are about to get unpacked for us through the rest of Proverbs, in all your ways, recognize, embrace, know him intimately and personally. That's what it is to trust him. It's to desire his presence, not a feeling of his presence, but to think of him and what you face in light of him in all your ways. There's nothing in your life roped off from him. There's no area that's reserved from his gaze, no area where he isn't implicated. It's a relationship that touches every part of your life. So you, you can't deny him influence over how you speak to a difficult person at work or speak about that person outside of work to how you spend your money or how much time you spend sleeping or who you sleep with. He's implicated in all of those decisions. And wisdom comes from trust in the Lord. And trust in the Lord is not just to begrudgingly accept that he's implicated in all those decisions, but to seek him out in all of those decisions. To think, how does the fact that I am in a relationship with God change how I look at this thing I'm facing, whatever it might be? It's the beginning of wisdom. Lean on him with everything you have. Look for him in everything that you face. And you're on the road to wisdom. And here's why it's so important. That wisdom is going to be tested. That wisdom is going to be tested. This is verses 9 to 12. We've seen wisdom's a key to the life all of us want, that it starts by trusting him with everything. But the text we've read together, it, it rounds out this morning with a warning. One of, the, one of the main traits of wisdom in the Bible is that it is deeply realistic. It is not a rosy picture about how life feels. Wisdom is tuned in deeply to the dangers that we all face. Not the dangers that some of us will face, the dangers that each and every one of us will face. And this text points us to two of the primary dangers that all of us will face at different times in our life. There is danger to our hearts and our ability to trust in him every time things are going really well. And there's danger to our hearts, to our ability to trust in him 
every time things are going really rough. And all of our lives are sort of a mixed bag, right? So at any given time, you're going to have some things in your life that you like and some things in your life that you don't. That's just life, right? It's a mixed bag. But there's also, it's also true that sometimes in our lives, we're having a really good season. Things are going well. The things that we want, we're starting to see them happen. And there's also sometimes in our life where it seems like everything is going wrong. What you do in each of those times is where wisdom will get tested in you, where its greatest threats will be faced, and where you'll respond well and grow wiser, respond poorly and become more and more foolish. Verses 9 to 12 point the way to wisdom in these two settings. So the first setting comes out in verse 9. Verse 9 says to honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So honor him when you're at your best. Honor him when your crops are in. And you no longer have to fear for your safety. This would have been written to people who lived in an agricultural world. Bad year for the crops, people died. They starved. Bad year for water. Drought was a big thing in the, place, in the part of the world where this was written. People die. So that was one of the most, the most important reasons people looked to God. Because they couldn't control the weather that was going to affect their crops. But this guy, this guy is writing to us saying, well, you need to honor the Lord when the crops are in. When you're safe. When you're wealthy because you had a good year. That's when you need to honor the Lord. And the reason that you're in danger then is that when you don't feel on the edge of existence, when you don't feel like you might slip and fall to your death, well, then you forget that, you really, that your life is as fragile as it is. Honor him when you're successful. Not to get what you want, but when you've already got what you want. Because it's then that you're not going to feel like you need him for anything. And it's then, for, I mean, if we're, if we're honest, it's, it's at those times when you get what you want that not only are you not going to feel like you need him because you already have everything you want in that time, but you're also not going to want to acknowledge that you needed him to get where you are. You're going to have a really strong incentive when things are going well to explain why things are going well by your own skills, your own wisdom, your own resourcefulness. All of us want that. And how quickly does that take root, right? How quickly do we start to, to claim success in our hearts for the things that are going well? I mean, Pete, we may deny it. On the outside, we might want to look like we know we didn't do this for ourselves, but on the inside, somebody compliments you for something. On the inside, everything in you is screaming out, yeah, you're right. I did really nail that. And it feeds a kind of prideful comparison to people who don't have what you do in those times. Isn't it true that you can have success? I mean, just a random small example. Isn't it true that you can have success on a new diet, a new eating plan for like a week. You hold to it for like a week after not caring about anything about what you ate. And at the end of that week, you're already sort of 
looking down at people who aren't careful about what they eat. You know, you're already judging your friend who's going through the line at Subway for heaping on all the extra cheese and the, uh, the bacon and, and whatever else. Or maybe it's you're looking in line at the guy next to you in Chipotle and, uh, you know, you're going with the, with, the, with the burrito bowl, no rice. And the guy's just, you know, he's using the white flour tortilla and he's heaping the, ri- the white rice in there, not even the brown rice. And he's asking for the cheese and the sour cream. I mean, how quick do you start to look at that guy? Look at that guy. Well, unfortunately, I know what, what to eat. Every week. How quickly? And another, in, another, another problem here is that when you, when you take this turn, you start to, start to credit yourself with where you've gotten. Another big, another big thing is that it, it, it starts to build in you that you earned what you have, and therefore it's yours to use. I mean, who gets to tell me what to do with this? It's I'm the reason I have it, after all. So why should I take anyone else into account when I think about what to do with it? But wisdom, wisdom acknowledges, wisdom knows, wisdom gets in the heart as, a, as an instinct. Wisdom knows I wouldn't have any of this if it hadn't been given to me by, by, by my father. That I won't have all of this tomorrow if he doesn't continue to give it to me. That there's nothing I have that I haven't received. And that everything I have, therefore, everything I have belongs to him. And he has the right to tell me what to do with it. And this is even more true in light of the gospel. I, I, I really appreciated a sermon I came across um, on this passage uh, by Timothy Keller, who pastors up in, in uh, New York City. He, he's the one who really helped me to see that these verses here at the end really present us with two separate tests. The test of when things are going well, the test of, w- of when they're not. And his recommendation is when things are going really well in your life, the, one of the first things you need to start doing is remembering the gospel and what it tells you. Because, friends, the message of the gospel is that, that we have nothing on our own, that, in fact, we're so far gone on our own, that the God who made us had to himself come into the world. He had to come here to rescue us. And he had to live a life in which he did everything that we have failed to do. He had to do it for us. That we, what we brought to the table was our, our rejection of him. We made ourselves his enemies. We wanted nothing to do with him. That anything we have now is our gift from the one who did not let our rejection of him stop him from loving us well. That's humbling. When you think on that, that humbles you in success, and it leads you to wisdom. Now, here's the last thing I'll say. This is the other test, the other side of the test. Verses 11 and 12 are about when things are going wrong. And I know you guys get this. You're suffering already. Some of it I know about, much, much more of it sitting in this room right now I've not even heard of. Maybe no one outside of you knows, but you know. And your suffering is what these verses are about. And you need to hear them because I'm guessing that what your instincts tell you when when you're suffering is that it isn't safe to trust God. (laughs) Maybe you think that trusting on him or leaning on him is what got you here in the first place. Maybe you're thinking he couldn't do anything to stop it or what would probably be even worse to think or uh, would feel worse when you think this is that he could have stopped it, but he 
didn't because he doesn't really care about me. Because he's indifferent. But these are precisely the times when you most need to lean on him. And not on what you see. These are the precisely the times when you need to be looking to him and seeing what you're experiencing in light of him. Because it's at these times, that if, if, in the good times, what we need is to be humbled by the gospel. In hard times, what we need more than anything is to be affirmed by the gospel and to be told that the gospel promise is that God so loved you that he gave his only son so that you could become his daughter, so that you could become his son. You need to be affirmed with God's love for you. And what you need to be told is what these two verses tell you. That for whatever reason, however mysterious the causes of what's hard in your life may be, the function of what's hard in your life, what God is doing with what's hard in your life is clear. And it's a sign not of his lack of care for you, but of his total devotion to your good. It's a sign that he loves you. Verse 11 says, don't despise the Lord's discipline. For the Lord reproves who? The one that he can't stand? The one that he wants to punish? No, he reproves the one that he loves. In fact, it's the one that he delights in. That's the one that he uses hard things to refine, to shape, to chisel into an image of something great. The hard things in your life are a sign that God cares deeply. They are not a sign that he is punishing you for something. Maybe you deserve some of the hard things in your life, but that's not what this text is saying. In fact, plenty of other places in the Bible tell you not to look behind the the, the glass, so to speak. Don't peer into the mystery that is suffering in this world. We don't know why God allows all the things that he allows. What this text wants you to do is to throw into high definition what he's doing with what's hard. Don't know exactly why he allowed it, but now that it's here, in the brokenness that is the world, what he's doing in the life of those who trust him, that is crystal clear. He is shaping them into the image of his son. He is ripping away what else they might have trusted in that has kept them from the full and joyful life that he wants for them. And he is leaving them with no other choice, no other hope, but to rest everything on him and hope that he's true. I finally got around this week to reading one of C.S. Lewis's classic books. I, I I've had it on my shelf a long time, and I I kept seeing people quote it when they were talking about this passage, so I finally got into it. It's a book called The Problem of Pain. It's a book about the problem of pain, which is how can God, who really loves us, allow humans to suffer? And C.S. Lewis knew it firsthand. He wrote these books after profound pain in his own life, loss that rocked his world. And what Lewis argues in this book is that the reason we see this as a problem, that there's real suffering and that God could still love us, is that we, we don't fully understand what real love actually is. That the love of God as he is, is what C.S. Lewis calls him paying us an intolerable compliment. An intolerable compliment. It is God's unwillingness to let us stay where we are. His analogy is to a great work of art. 
an artist who cares deeply, who loves the piece of art that he is creating. Too much to just let it stay where it is. Here's what he says. This is a quote from the book. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as, a, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother, a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. He's imagining the picture being a living thing and, and the artist loving it enough to sort of scrub it out and start over again and scrub it out and start over again, scrub it out and fix this piece over here. If that thing was living, it would be thinking, no more, be done. I wish I was just some sort of thumbnail sketch. It'd be easier on me. In the same way, he says, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed us, designed for us, a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. We're we're wishing not for more love from God, but for less. Because, friends, God loves us too much to give us the happiness that we want for ourselves. He loves us too much for him to follow the course of what's right in our eyes. He loves us too much and we can't expect of God what is deadly even when it shows up in us to lean on our understanding. But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus has given us a great promise that he knows how to fix us. He won't stop till it's done. And while we wait and endure the mystery, we have only to look at the cross and know everything that we need to know about what this God feels for his children. And you are his children if you trust in him. Father, give us this trust. If it's not your gift, we don't have it. Protect us from what's wise in our own eyes. Protect us from our definition of happiness. And give us instead the life-giving trust that rests on you and whatever you bring. Only bring us to Jesus and we will be happy. We pray in his name. Amen.